So we continue today in our summer long series on the creed, the Apostles' Creed, a document of our belief that helps us grow in faith and faithfulness and connects us with what Christians have believed uh, for a long time in a lot of different places. Um, today, uh, we hit on a, a really kind of um, uh, Christian and I were talking about it uh, before we got on the song that he just sang came from a compilation of songs around the Ascension. And it seems uh, kind of wild to have a whole album of music around a doctrine and a holiday that most Christians don't really even know what to think about. So I guess the, po the question I'm going to pose for today is when, when we say that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, what does that mean and why does it matter? Um, in our short time together, I'm going to attempt to solve this problem for us today. First off, I think that it's connected with the territory that we've been the last couple weeks. When we've said that we believe that Jesus has somehow divinized earth, that Jesus has made earth holy by becoming flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood. Now, though, the ascended Jesus is humanizing heaven. It's a really bizarre thing to even think of. He's divinized earth, and now he's humanizing heaven. Maybe the first move was that Jesus would be with us, that God would be with us, and now that Jesus is going to be with God for us, or even ahead of us. I think this has really awesome implications. When the Tuesday group was talking about this, it was a really excited time together to start to suss out some of these things. Uh, I immediately thought of the Wendell Berry phrase he wrote about uh, places, but I'm going to paraphrase it for bodies because Jesus is now with God after having become a human. That means that there are now no unsacred bodies. There are only sacred bodies and desecrated bodies. There, there are no unsacred bodies, only sacred bodies and desecrated bodies. So I, I want to think with the, the doctrine of the ascension, that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, I want to think about a few things. I want to think about the where of that, the when of that, and the how of that. First, I think one of the, the best byproducts of having the ascension in our creed, our founding Kind of document of community belief is that we often so often get hung up on trying to answer the question where is jesus you might have you might have said this in a time of pain where are you god where is jesus in this sometimes we're we're so hung up on trying to answer that question that we neglect for a second to stand in awe like the disciples about not just where Jesus is going or has gone, but what he's doing when he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. He's going to God and bringing us with him. Maybe then we can get over our gaping mouth blast off Jesus images. I, I don't know if you've ever seen um, that, that image from uh, some of the ways people portray this. And there's always this like, nail-scarred Jesus blasting off from the disciples. And uh, Owen's reading had, had this picture of the, the disciples just standing there with their mouths wide open. 
watching Jesus leave them, uh, you have to feel like that was really scary uh, for them. Um, but Gary's going to read a passage from Ephesians, Ephesians 4. And I think it, this passage from Ephesians blows open what is possible uh, uh, when Jesus ascends on high uh, in power. So Gary's going to read from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Oh. We might be having some technical difficulties. You are one body and spirit, just as God also called you into one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. God has given his grace to each one of us, measured out by the gift that he has given by Christ. That's why the scripture says, when he climbed up to the heights, he captured prisoners and he gave gifts to the people. What does the phrase he climbed up mean if it doesn't mean that he had first gone down in the lower regions of the earth? The one who went down is the same one who climbed up above all the heavens so that he might fill everything. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. His purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ until we reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's son. God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. As a result, we, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching and deceitful steam and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. Instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ, who is the head. The whole body grows from him as it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments, the body makes itself grow in that it builds itself up with love as each one does its part. Perfect, thanks Gary. Good word. But you see, quickly, we go from the Acts passage that has this sort of blast off Jesus um, uh, imagery and, and, and then, we move in Ephesians to, to something that's a little more complicated, uh, a little more uh, difficult to understand just how Jesus is still present with us. I think of this um, piece of art by an Aboriginal artist in Western Australia named uh, Shirley Purdy. And she, she's painting this painting with actually um, the earth that she knows um, with the literal earth that she walks on. She, she dug up ochres from West Australia and mixed them with glue and applied them to a hewn canvas from the things of her homeland. And so this, this, uh, this image features the Christ figure, uh, Gambuni, and it's Gambuni ascending 
by actually descending <laughs> that that in their imagination which is not complicated by like the two or three level imagination that we have of like earth heaven hell we have like three layers with like they, you know if you picture like an elevator you could press buttons to go up to heaven or down to hell in in the aboriginal imagination um that that doesn't really exist so for them it makes most sense for jesus to ascend to depart from us to become all the more present to creation via the earth so so for this artist jesus ascends by descending by by going down 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 and by being among us it's hard to imagine for this culture this aboriginal culture who believed in this and picture that jesus would be right on all of our level, it's hard to imagine them being bound up in some of the uh, practices that that um, that us in the West so often are guilty of to strip and to scar creation in exchange for consumption or gain. When you think that Jesus is in your midst, we all act pretty differently when we believe that God is on the table is at the table, and so you see this in. Uh, in other cultures and in their art and in their practice. I think C.S. Lewis has something similar. Again, this is with the where Jesus is connecting Jesus's descent to the dead and ascent as two sides of the same coin. Uh, C.S. Lewis pictures a diver and he says, uh, he pictures Jesus as a diver, quote, stripping off garment after garment and making himself naked and then flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water to the pitch black cold freezing water down into the mud and slime and then up again his lungs almost bursting back again through the green and warm and sunlit water and then at last out into the sunshine holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get that thing is human nature, but associated with it, all nature, the new universe. So we see this imagination for the, the ways that ascent and descent are connected because it's Jesus um, diving deep down to, to grab onto us, as we said last week, to grab us by the wrist and then to pull us up. This means... The, the, the byproduct of this, this means that for the first time in history, but for the rest of all eternity, that now because Jesus went to be with God at his right hand, that there is a human body in heaven. This is basically what the whole of the really challenging book of Hebrews is about. Hebrews is kind of 200 level uh, New Testament reading that the whole thing is about Jesus passing through as both priest and sacrifice, as both creator and Sabbath, that Jesus is forerunning. He's going ahead of us. He's changing the game. It means that Jesus doesn't do all this stuff hypothetically, but concretely, and that our bodies matter because of it, that matter matters. Because just as Jesus managed to bring all of God down to us, now he's managed to bring all of us back up to God, not as a hologram or some self-healing body, but one with wounds. As we said a couple weeks ago, the stripes which heal us. These wounds have become beautiful scars. This means that Jesus rules on the throne with God and 
acts as a high priest on behalf of all of us, even as he's one with God. It means that there is a human beholding God's glory, holding God's glory. When you read through those Old Testament stories of like Moses encountering God with Sinai and his face is glowing because he encountered uh, God's glory, that's only a pale preview. Paul says it's, it's like looking through a dark mirror at the, the reality that Jesus is bringing about. It means that there's a human being in God's presence with a scarred body. So let's not get hung up on where Jesus is spatially. Let's, let's focus on where Jesus is being with God for us. So maybe another question is, when is all this happening? What does the ascension mean for when Jesus's uh, reign and rule comes? It means that, that, that Jesus is with the Father even now. That Jesus is in control even now. It means that Jesus being in control is over us and in some sense apart from us. And this should give us both great comfort and great pause. It means that there really is truth to the idea that if something massively bad happens, or really something good, but we usually think about it when something bad happens, like an election or an attack or a diagnosis or a global pandemic or something like that. It means that God is still in charge. Despite all of the evidence to the contrary, Jesus is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God right now in the control room that is not very far from us. You see, the biblical concept of heaven is not some place in a far-off galaxy. Again, the Aborigines uh, understand this. But the concept of heaven is something earthy. It's something um, not far from us. It's something parallel, and it's something that intersects with earth. Heaven is earth's control room. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at an arm's reach. It's tangible. And Jesus, who died and was victoriously raised by God's spirit, has been crowned and sits at God's side, at God's side, which is not very far from our side either. This should give us pause because that means for as much as Jesus pledges to be with us, it also means that he's, he's not um, always for us if we're not for God. This is what the prophets were saying over and over. Uh, another sort of prophet, Bob Dylan, comes to mind when he prophetically warned us of the, brut the brutal things humanity can do when we claim that God is always on our side. But Jesus on the throne means that we don't control him. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm, I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time with Noah and Titus, and we haven't got there yet, but I know enough about the story to know that one of the characters talks about Aslan and claims that he is good, but he's also a lion. There's a power and a goodness, and there's also a danger. And that's a little bit of what's happening with Jesus on the throne for us, but apart from us. The cross recalibrates the world, and it puts the powers and principalities that act like their control on notice. Our best response to this, this reality is repentance. It's awe and joyful obedience. We should fall on our face in worship, and then we should get up and get to work setting this world to right, not as agents, 
that are free to ourselves, but as God's set right people setting this world to right, bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This means also that Jesus is praying for us at God's right side. He's acting as a high priest for us. And this doesn't really translate well to our society. We don't have a public office as a high priest, a like professional advocate for us. But if Jesus is our high priest, I think this makes us kind of evaluate some of our prepositions for prayer. Have you ever considered that Jesus is praying for you right now? When Jesus says, uh, or when Paul says uh, about Christians who are in Christ that we should pray without ceasing, part of that goes beyond our own abilities and just relies on the Jesus that is always at the right hand of the Father and is always praying for us. Have you ever thought about the structure of your prayers? I certainly think that the Spirit is our best translator who can figure out what you're really praying for even when your words fail. So you don't have any excuses for, for not lifting a prayer to God, even if it's clumsy or even if you don't know what to pray for, because the Spirit is praying for you and in you. This week, consider how you, how you pray. Consider these prepositions that you are praying in the Spirit. The Spirit is your enabler, your organizer, your puller of prayers. You're praying to the Father, who creates and recreates and who gives good and perfect gifts. And you're praying through the sun and all of this interaction is seamless. The sun sits at God's side and is genetically able to ask for things in the spirit to the father through the son. Another implication of this, if Jesus is our high priest, it means that, <clears throat> that if you want to bring someone to God, you should be praying for them. If someone is suffering or if someone is far from God, you should be praying for them because you are, you are bringing those requests again in the spirit to the father through the son. You're bringing them by your prayer into the very Trinitarian life of God. If we remember well, we remember that before you ever came to God, you were brought to God by Christ. He keeps bringing you there even now so that when we pray, we are, we are participating in this reality. We are becoming priest under the great high priest. And, and this is one of the best and first ways of bringing people to God, even as we work with and for them. Maybe you're nodding your head in agreement that this all sounds really good, but wondering if it's really true, if it's really happening. If when it all comes down to it, if Jesus could really possibly be in charge in this messed up world, sometimes we look around and we don't really know who's in charge. It seems like all sorts of bad things and bad people are running the show. There's this, this really cool word in Greek, called proleptic. It, it means you're kind of ahead of yourself. And so there's something proleptic about this rule. It means it's, it's happening ahead of time. That despite 
the fact that Jesus is indeed sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling over creation, that creation hasn't quite caught up with that massive reality, that creation is groaning to catch up. This week, I considered how this might be the case with those Juneteenth celebrations. And something that is true, that is that our world is trying to catch up to. First off, the actual holiday kind of marks that lag. The whole holiday is about a lag between the announcement and the enactment. You see, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation happened on September 22nd, 1862. The end of the Civil War didn't happen until April 9th, 1865, almost, uh, I guess, two and a half or almost three years later. And Juneteenth marks the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation and the subsequent jubilee in Galveston, Texas on June 19th, 1965. Despite what was true almost three years earlier, Juneteenth remains an important marker for the continuing unfolding of that reality. The slaves were already free. They needed to they needed to hear it proclaimed and they needed to enact that freedom. Texas needed to catch up with what had already been long true. And many in our current black community still see the reality of the Emancipation Proclamation as incomplete and unfolding more than 158 years later. Our country is still trying to catch up to its stated goals. This is something like the kingdom of God in our midst invigorated by the truth of Christ's presence and power in our midst, but lurching toward to reflect that shalom reality more wholly. What was true is true and will be true. We're, we're just trying to fill in that truth. That is what lives of faithfulness do. We struggle against the powers and principalities which seem so strong which deal death, which meddle in the affairs of flesh and blood, but are ultimately powerless phonies compared to the Lord Jesus crucified, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father. So when we ask when about the ascension, right now, still, and still to come, all of those things are true. And finally, the how, the how of the ascension. And I think this, this might be the most explosive and exciting part. The, the passage that Gary read in Ephesians is a callback to Psalm 68. It's kind of a, uh, an anticipation of Jesus as the ascended Lord, crucified and resurrected, who sits powerly at the right hand of the Father. The psalm opens up with this anthem that is full of power and war imagery. As, as Ken read earlier, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may you blow them away like smoke. And then the Psalm later speaks of God's chariots numbering in the 10,000s. This remember these Psalms are songs. So this is, this is Wagner, this is Toby Keith. This is, these are tough songs of God's power but then Paul remixes it. Paul subverts it in just the right way 
because Jesus subverts that picture. Where the original had Jesus ascending on high to take many captives and receive many gifts, you see a conquering king would would, uh, conquer and pillage and all the things that were taken from people would be laid at that king's feet. Paul tweaks it just a little bit and says that Jesus ascended on high and took many captives. I assume those captives are these powers and principalities that are running amok and now Jesus has control over. And then here's the tweak. It says, Jesus ascended on high, took many captives. And it says, Jesus gave gifts to his people. All those things that were taken from people and normally laid at the conquering king's feet. Now Jesus is giving gifts. He's spreading gifts. He's He's the Robin Hood character, robbing from the, the, the evil rich of the world and, and giving to the poor. Rather than a plundering king, Jesus is a gift-giving king. The message, paraphrase says, that Jesus handed out gifts above and below, filled heaven with gifts, filled earth with his gifts. The one who went down is the same one who climbed up to the heavens so that he might fill everything. Just as the floor has dropped and the ceiling has raised, Jesus is filling it all with gifts to mark Jesus' presence. And here's the surprising thing. These gifts aren't monetary. They're not necessarily physical things. They're actually offices. They're jobs. They're people. As I often say um, to people uh, about uh, my work with church, it's just God and people. Yeah, so what is, what is being a, a professional Christian or a pastor like I say? It's just God and people. And that word just does a lot of work here. For as much as so much of, of our work in Christ seems to be mundane and unsurprising, God is acting in and through people to work God's rule. The ever-present Christ who gives gifts has split out like light through a prism in the ascension. Has split out all these different gifted abilities and personalities and callings. We are so often looking forward to or expecting Jesus to work in our lives or in our world through like laser beam focus when most often God works through refracted light, through all sorts of different um, expressions. Ephesians 4 talks about these expressions and I'm I'm not positive these are the only ones, but these are the ones that Paul focused on. The first one, is that Jesus gives the gift of apostles. These apostles, you can notice it even in the word, there's that P-O-S-T, like post office or postal worker. These apostles are sent ones. They're the ones who are supposed to go to places. They're the, the tip of the spear. They go to places where the good news is better than anyone thought, and they bring others with him or her. Apostles are are pioneers, they're entrepreneurs, they're ones who aren't satisfied with the way things are or where they are, they're ready to go. Maybe you've known 
some of those people. Maybe you are those people. If you're, if you're not those people, they can be kind of annoying uh, because they're, they're, they're always ready for an adventure. But those people are part of the ascended Jesus's gifts to the church. Another one I mentioned is prophets. Prophets live with a kind of holy discontent that bugs them deep in their bones until truth and justice and faithfulness are not only talked about, but evidenced in everyday lived realities of God's people. Prophets never get tired of calling God's people back to faithfulness. And prophets never do this from afar. They never lob grenades or throw rocks. They are inside of that glass house. This is a dangerous profession. Prophets are more often cast out or killed than any other character in the gospel story. But these prophets in our midst, maybe you are a prophet in our midst, are a gift of the ascended Jesus. Prophets center justice in the life of God. I I saw this ministry shirt um, that a family member was wearing and it it had all the things this ministry wanted to be about. And it was like um, scripture and evangelism, like all all really good things, scripture and evangelism and community um, and accountability and all these things. And nowhere on that story was justice. Um, And if, if you're a good reader of scripture or a good evangelist uh, or are into accountability and community, you know that justice is a central theme for the God who judges and makes things right. Uh, So prophets, uh, if there was a prophet in that ministry, they'd make sure that at least the shirt got the word justice on it, right? The next gift are evangelists. And again, let's, let's get out of our minds the, uh, televangelists um, uh, that swindle people out of money. I guess, I guess technically right now I'm a televangelist, uh, not, not the money part, but just being on a uh, television medium. Um, but again, that the root of that word is good news. The evangelion of the gospel, this proclamation of God's reign and rule that goes out the evangelists in our midst are those master chefs who have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord and can't help but invite others to the feast. They create hospitable spaces and help dead taste buds come to life and savor for the first time. Maybe you are an evangelist. Maybe you don't know that you are. Uh, Or maybe you're around those evangelists and they'll never stop singing and talking and it shows up in their work it shows up in everything they do the goodness of god another gift are the shepherds in our midst sometimes this is this is pastor um uh you know the word pastor even sounds like pasture uh for shepherds shepherds guide and shepherds gather, they anticipate needs and bind up wounds. They listen for voices in the margin and they guard others from harm and hurt. Whenever you see the icon of Jesus, the good shepherd, he's got a hurt lamb around his neck. Shepherds uh, like Jesus go after the one, even leaving the 99. Shepherds are risky because they care and they're all about seeking and saving the lost. Maybe that's the way your heart is put together. 
you're always uh, thinking about both who's here and who's not here, um, who's, who's doing well and who's hurting. And lastly, at least of this list are the teachers. Teachers open the scriptures and they open the world up to growing the mind of Christ in community. This is a spirit renewed and transformed curriculum of Christ likeness. They're always um, seeking out wisdom and trying to translate it into something that makes sense for those whom they're teaching. And first and foremost, they are teachable, um, even as they're all about others learning and growing. Uh, many churches, uh, maybe churches that you've been a part of, have, have mostly prized the pastors and the teachers that kind of put the stamp of importance on that being the whole of ministry. And, and I think when that happens, often when apostles who are ready to go or prophets who have a, a burning critique inside of them or even evangelists get either cast out or outsourced to other ministries. But Jesus is saying that he is refracting and giving these gifts so that we have the goal of becoming mature adults, fully grown and measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. It is beautiful and messy and sometimes frustrating that God works this way, that God might conceive of Jesus' ruling by giving gifts that require us to need each other. I think that's what we so often forget, that Jesus almost... Uh, almost gives these gifts as, as uh, pieces that don't work right until they're all gathered together. Jesus rules by giving gifts that require us to need each other. Somehow without all of these components and more in Christ's body, we're lopsided. We have a hard time achieving the goal of becoming mature. And without a prophetic or an apostolic voice who is allowed to grow and develop, and voice that voice, we're probably a little immature. Even some of these churches and communities, maybe even our community who, who feels really mature because we're really good at one of these things, if, if we don't have the other things represented, if we're not identifying and equipping and empowering all of these gifts to exist at the same time, we're not mature at all. We, we might have to evidence some of the trust that we have um, that Jesus is overall and in all and fills all by, by trusting each other, that each of us has a gift to offer, that, that I can offer you my gift and that you'll receive it with grace. We, we can trust Jesus, the giver of gifts, by offering and receiving each other's gifts, even gifts that are still in progress in process, even gifts that aren't fully grown, even gifts that need to be honed, and even the way that we present these gifts needs to be figured out or matured. We also need to be on the lookout together for gifts that are undervalued or underrepresented. Gifts that sometimes we don't recognize, sometimes they even seem like a threat rather than a gift. I, I, I think prophets probably get this a lot but they often uh, might not be the most fun to be around because they always have kind of something to say. What if 
what if we could grow in our in our grace, which is gift giving and gift receiving. It's an economy of gift by uh, hearing well when the prophets among us speak up. And then uh, to, to come to a close, what if the most strange and even threatening type of Christian you know is just Jesus trying to show up to you and to build the church for the sake of others? You see, this, this is a really explosive conclusion to come to, that, that some of the people that you uh, most seek to, to guard yourself from or to cast out might be the exact people that you need for the church to, to grow, become mature, and to work well and, and witness to and evidence Christ for the sake of the world. This is how we experience the ascended Christ ever presence together. This is a unified diversity with patience and discernment and other centeredness. It's again, downright Trinitarian. We're slipping into this stream of, of the God who is three and one, in this case, five and one Jesus refracted out into all these different offices and personalities and gifts and skills. This is how we live healthy, mature, and vibrant in community, experiencing and encouraging and empowering each other's gifts as instances of the ascended Christ, non-anxious rule and reign in our world. Will you all pray with me? Jesus, I give you thanks for not only your power, but your creativity. You've given us everything we need to not only to uh, survive, but to thrive. You've given us each other. You've given even the small church community that is scattered uh, during this time of pandemic. You've given us everything we need. You've given us so many gifts. Help us be grateful and generous with these gifts. Help us steward them well and use them um, uh, wisely and um, uh, frequently. Help us have eyes to see and ears to hear from the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers in our midst, um, that in so doing we might experience a facet of your reign and rule in our lives and in our world, that our world might show um, your power and your presence even more when we do this. Uh, help us um, uh, continue uh, to uh, open up these gifts in each other. We praise you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.